0: Good morning everyone. Um, I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 3, which you can find on page 5 of the Church Bibles. Genesis chapter 3. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, Until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil.
1: Good morning, Vietnam! Hey, it's another delightful day here in vacation land.
0: Everybody, time to
1: get up, get up wherever you are. That's right, rise and shine, rise and shine. Got some songs going out right now to a couple of guys on the road to Nat Trang. You know what I'm talking about. Hey, Mr. O'Malley, O'Malley, you know, the Irish Dolby twins, they're out there. Special song going out to you right now. I see trees of green Red and blue I see them blue For me and you And I think to myself What a wonderful world I see skies of blue Louis B. Armstrong, the great Satchmo.
2: Well, that's pretty much it, isn't it? A wonderful world. So much beauty, so much to enjoy, so much really to experience in the world. And yet, at the same time, and I don't need to tell you, our world is broken. Not just people dropping bombs, child serial killers or earthquakes, but brokenness too in our own little worlds. Broken bodies, broken dreams, broken relationships. And it begs the question, what went wrong with the world? Why so much suffering? Why is work so difficult? Why are relationships so difficult even among Christian people? Why do the people we love get diseases and die? And where's the hope in all of this, if there is any hope? Well, our hands hopefully hold God's answer uh, to this question and these questions. It is no exaggeration to say that if we ripped Genesis 3 from our Bibles, don't do that, we would lose one of the most important things ever written. God has placed in our hands his explanation for why the world is the way that it is. In just a, short, a few short sentences, we have some of God's answers to some of our deepest questions Answers that we will not find in our geography or history textbooks. We won't even find them in our science or philosophy textbooks. Genesis 3, do keep it open in front of you as we look at it on page 5. It begins in paradise. There's no brokenness. Relationships are perfect. Work is fulfilling and satisfying. It's a joy. Can you imagine? When hungry and Adam and Eve... Uh, when, sorry, when, hung, yeah, when hungry, Adam and Eve simply reach up, pluck some ripe, ripe fruit and, and eat. That is the picture of the world at the start of Genesis chapter 3. But by the end of Genesis chapter 3, it's all change. Adam and Eve find themselves in a very different world. The man and the woman are now excluded from paradise brokenness is their new reality, and what is more, cherubim, who are kind of like warrior angels, guard the way back to the tree of life, which is needed if we're going to have eternal life, and they guard it with a flaming sword. Now, this chapter, there's just, there's just so much uh, in it. There really is. But we're going to group things together this morning uh, under two headings and we'll spend most time on the first one here is the first one the snake and the sin all was very good and then seemingly out of nowhere a snake slithers onto the scene and we're asking well where did that come from how come it talks and why on earth is a creature made by god opposed to god Well, they're all good questions, but Genesis is silent on them. Only uh, later in the Bible do we discover that the snake speaks through the agency of Satan, who is revealed in this chapter as the great enemy of humanity. So let's pick up the story, but as we do so, we need to be conscious of God's command back in chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17. Because God had said to Adam and Eve, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. That's what God said. And although it doesn't use the word, this is really a covenant, an agreement. And a covenant is a blend of law and love. It's a relationship which is more intimate than a legal contract, but it's more binding than mere personal affection. When God created humanity, he bound us to himself in this relationship of love, this covenant. And in response, God simply asks for our loyalty to him It is this covenant relationship that Satan, or snake, wants to poison. And he's got a strategy, and he's very clever, very cunning, and very crafty. Now, his strategy isn't what we we might assume. It's not to sort of frighten or to sort of coerce us to disobey God with spectacular signs. He's much more clever for that. Much too subtle. No, no, he uses words. It's just a quiet chat that goes on here. A few questions, but all designed to poison our relationship with the Lord. Now, when I was uh, studying this, I was uh, reading one preacher who who compared Satan's strategy to like the the plays that a basketball team uh, might make. You know, they spend hours working out these plays to defeat the enemy. Uh, and, and this is what Satan does. He, ha- he makes three plays here. The first is confusion, the second presumption, and the third ambition. So the first play, it's there in verse 1, it's confusion. Satan said to the woman, verse 1, did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? Satan's first play is a simple question, and the simple answer is, no, God didn't say that. God gave every tree for us to eat in the garden, except one. But what Snake is aiming to do there is to confuse us over the goodness of God. Really? He said that? No, he couldn't have done, surely not. God is good, isn't he? Why wouldn't he then give you every tree? Is he holding something back from you? It is true to say that Satan always seeks to muddy uh, the waters when it comes to God's word. Because that way we can say, well, God's word isn't clear. That way we can say, well, it's just a bit too tricky, isn't it, the Bible? I don't really know what it says. And that way we become confused. Now, it's really interesting that Satan made exactly the same play against our Lord Jesus Christ when he was in the wilderness. Remember, he said, if you are the Son of God, if, then tell these stones to become bread. He's trying to confuse Jesus as to to who he is and what God's word says to him. And of course, Satan utterly failed, thank God, And our Lord Jesus Christ defended himself against Satan and defeated him. He wasn't confused. He knew what God's word said and he trusted it. And he quoted it back to Satan. The second play is there in verse 4. It's presumption. After sowing confusion, Satan now tries presumption. See, God had been crystal clear. Disobedience would result in certain death. But the snake says to the woman, you will not certainly die. It's an outright denial of God's word. Eve, God won't punish you for such a trivial thing. His bark is worse than his bite. God will forgive you this minor offense. See, Satan is... Tempting Eve to presume upon God's grace of forgiveness. And Satan still makes the same play. That sin, it's only a little thing. It's no big deal, really. And you won't be hurting anyone. God wouldn't deny you this, would he? Not if he loved you. And after all, he he knows we're just human. No one's perfect. And we fall for that kind of thing when we say, I know that relationship is wrong, but it just feels so right. What we're really saying is that God doesn't have our best interests at heart in this. And we're saying that, you know, God will forgive, I'll, I'll walk away unharmed from this. And we fall for it when we say, well, I, I know that I should tell the truth, but it's just a little white lie. We're saying, God's gonna turn a deaf ear no one's going to get hurt here. And we fall for it when we say, I, I know I shouldn't take this, but everyone else does. And what we're saying then is that, that God, he's not really generous. He's, or He might be generous to other people, but he's not generous to me. He's stingy to me. But he'll understand why I feel the way I do. He won't punish me for it. See, we fall for it in a million ways. Yes, says the snake, you will not surely die. You can count on God's grace. God loves you after all. Satan still speaks his demonic doctrine of presumption. And does it sometimes even through church ministers. So we go to great-uncle Jack's funeral. Jack never trusted the Savior, but... The nice vicar puts together a really nice service and says some really nice things about Jack and everyone leaves thinking that Jack is in a nicer place. God will forgive. You will not certainly die. Notice too that Satan used this play against our Lord Jesus Christ, tempting him to presumption. So in the second temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4, he took Christ to the top of the temple and he said, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. He's saying, look, you're the Son of God, you can do whatever you want and God will look after you. No harm will come to you. God won't allow it. But once again, notice the obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely flawless There is no presumption in his heart. He says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Confusion, presumption, and then the third play, ambition in verse 5. So, we ourselves, when we read this, I'm sure we've all thought, Well, what's the big deal? Eating an apricot, an apple, or, or whatever it is, it's just a piece of fruit. It sounds so trivial, but it isn't because something much more sinister is at stake. Satan is appealing here to human ambition. Look what he says in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good. And evil. But Adam and Eve already know good and evil. They know what's good and they know what's evil because God said, Eat from any of the trees, that's good. Don't eat from that one tree, that's evil. So they know what that is. Adam and Eve know good and evil in that sense. But there's another sense. Look carefully at what the snake says. You will be like God knowing good and evil. You will know good and evil in the same way that God knows it. That is, you will get to say what is good and get to say what is evil. Mankind, we are made in the image of God. What a wonderful truth. But Satan appeals to our ambition, as if that wasn't enough for us. See, to be God is a giant step up from being like God. Probably mentioned this before, but a few years ago I visited Buckingham Palace and was ushered into the throne room. I desperately wanted to um, sneak under the ropes and... Just sit on that throne just for a few minutes. We all did. On reflection, ruling a a country or ruling the universe sounds like pretty hard work to me. But we all want to rule our own little worlds. We want to be those who say, this is good for me, this is evil for me. And to decide which is which. And Satan appeals to our ambition and we gobble it up. And so we run around like little kings and little queens saying, this is right and this is wrong for me. We don't listen to the word of God so often. And we pretend that there are no consequences. Now, as you might have predicted, Satan made this exact same play also against our Lord Jesus Christ. So in the third temptation, he shows him the kingdoms of the earth and he says, all this I'll give you if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus replies wonderfully, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Satan's strategy involves confusion, presumption, and ambition, and it works. As we all know, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. As sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, we are easy prey. We fall for Satan's schemes. But seeing them in the word of God, of course, should um, enable us to see what those schemes are and to guard against those schemes. Yes, but but Satan already has his fangs in us, so to speak. His His poison is already coursing through the veins of humanity and in our own veins. And so when we wrestle against evil, if we do that, which we will if we're Christian people, we will often find that we are on the losing side. And the question then is, where's the hope if it depends upon us, the evil? The answer which Genesis 3 tells us is that there's no hope in that scenario. Genesis 3 is God's explanation for why this wonderful world is not as wonderful as it once was. God gave us paradise and we listened to the snake and broke covenant with God. And so with Adam and Eve, we find ourselves east of Eden, excluded from paradise, daily experiencing All of the brokenness that we read about in verses 7 and following. Broken relationship with God, broken relationship with one another, and more brokenness, which we'll come to shortly. But there was a man who walked this earth who did not fall for Satan's strategies. A man whose obedience in life was flawless. Can you imagine And he did it not in a perfect paradise, but in a wilderness, a barren one. He defeated Satan, and Satan was forced to withdraw from him. As we learn that, as we see that, somehow or other, that should breathe hope into our souls. That just maybe paradise is not lost forever. Before we can fully appreciate that, though, we need to come to the second heading. So the snake and the sin, and secondly, the curse and the crusher. The curse and the crusher. So having listened to the word of the snake rather than the word of God, the consequences for humanity are devastating. Instead of being naked and unashamed, they are now clothed with shame Verse 7, instead of walking with God in the garden, they now hide. Verse 8, instead of marital harmony, they play the blame game. Verse 12, but there is hope. Hope emerges in a very strange place, actually. It emerges in God's curse, now, most simply, a curse is a word intended to bring about a negative result, a punishment, in other words. And for even Adam, this curse affects their primary spheres of responsibility. For the woman, marriage and family life will be excruciating for her. For the man, putting bread on the table will be backbreaking. So, where's the hope? Well for starters notice that the Lord God does not he does not directly curse Adam and Eve. He only curses their primary spheres of labor that he has assigned. Yet there is judgment, pain, toil, frustration, brokenness, death, but it is tempered judgment. Adam and Eve must have thought that they themselves were going to be cursed after the snake was cursed. But God's curse is not on them. What grace this is. They must have at that point thought, well, hang on a minute, we thought we were going to be cursed. What's happened here? Maybe there is hope. And hope is found in this chapter in the fact that God does curse the snake. And what the Lord is announcing to us here is that evil will not stand. That our great enemy will not triumph. We need to praise the Lord for cursing evil. Without it, suffering and death would have the final word in our lives. But this curse upon the snake opens a window of hope for us because by it, God declares war on evil. Now, when it comes to verse 15, the church has long seen it as a prediction of a deliverer, someone who would come along and crush the head of the snake. But in the process, this snake crusher would be wounded. Imagine seeing somebody stamp on the head of a a venomous snake. And at exactly the same time they do it, the, the snake opens and bites them on the heel. The snake is crushed. The snake crusher is wounded. When our Lord Jesus Christ defeated Satan in the wilderness, Satan was forced to withdraw to fight another day. And that day came three days later, uh, three years later rather, at Golgotha. It was at Golgotha that Christ crushed Satan, mortally wounding him. In the process Christ himself was wounded, but not of course mortally because three days later he rose again in triumph. What was going on then at Golgotha on the cross? Well, what happened was this. Christ was undoing Satan's work and at the same time triumphing over him. See, that curse that we deserved and we thought, well, how come Adam and Eve weren't cursed? Well, what was happening on the cross was that that curse was on Christ himself. That was God's plan right from the very start, that God plans to take the curse, our curse, himself, and triumph over evil at the same time. Paul writes in Galatians that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? By becoming a curse for us. Or later in Colossians, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Christ made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross means that our enemy bit the dust and is now doomed to destruction. Well, what a marvelous Savior we have in Christ. And what a marvelous word we have from God, a word of hope in Genesis 3. See, some of us, as well as feeling rather hot, feel weak and weary. We are perhaps feeling the difficulty and the brokenness. Perhaps work is difficult. Perhaps home life is painful. Maybe you're acutely aware that all is not well. And it isn't. But Christ gives us hope. We look at his perfect life of obedience and take heart. We look at his obedience even unto death and find strength. His obedience in both life and in death guarantees a glorious future that will not disappoint for everyone who trusts in him. See, so if you find yourself at the moment feeling hopeless and overwhelmed by your difficulties in life, perhaps you're feeling burdened or circumstances have just become too much for you or your sins are just weighing you down let me remind you of this one thing you are not the savior and you don't need to be the savior for god has appointed one for you you can relax you can exhale for your weakness you have christ for your sins and failures, you have Christ. You have Christ for your lack of righteousness and for your lack of goodness. For your brokenness and for your frailty. For everything that is not wonderful in your world, you have the Lord Jesus Christ. See, it was, it was the pre-incarnate Jesus who walked in the garden with humanity. And when we were driven out, he came with us. For us, he lived in a place called Galilee. And he prayed in a place called Gethsemane. He was tried at a place called Gabbatha. And he died at a place called Golgotha. For us. What a wonderful saviour. You probably know that when Jesus died on the cross. The temple curtain uh, was torn in two from top to bottom. But did you know that in the curtain, woven into the curtain, were cherubim? As our Lord Jesus Christ faced the flaming sword of God's judgment, the curtain tore, the cherubim were parted, and a path through to paradise was reopened. There is now a way back to the tree of life through faith in Jesus Christ. If you've never taken it, it's open for you this morning. We can only begin to make sense of this world if we have Genesis 3. It is a wonderful world. And maybe right now for you, it really feels like a wonderful world. Everything is hunky-dory in uh, your world. So you really see, quite honestly, no need for the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know that it's not always going to be that way, don't you? Experience tells you that. Genesis 3 tells you that. Difficulties, disease and death await. But Genesis 3 also offers you hope this morning. There was a man who kept the law that you broke and if you trust in him he did it on your behalf and he endured the curse that you deserved and if you trust in him then he has endured it for you and through his life and through his death he offers paradise for you minus the snake so paradise was lost what can we hope for in the end No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. Paradise lost, paradise regained, a wonderful world, a wonderful saviour. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this chapter of the Bible and its extraordinary, explanatory power of why the world is the way that it is. More than that, we thank you for our Savior. Thank you for his life of impeccable obedience and his sin-bearing, wrath-bearing, penalty-paying death. Oh Lord, may we However we're feeling uh, today, may we find hope in him. Amen.